This is Points North on Interlochen Public Radio, a show about the land, water, and inhabitants of the Upper Great Lakes. I'm Peter Payette. Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore turns 50 this month. It's a destination that brings well more than a million visitors each year to the sand dunes along Lake Michigan. It took nearly a decade to establish the lakeshore, thanks to vocal opposition from residents in this region. They feared government taking their land and displacing them, and racial tensions in the 1960s also spilled over into the fight. Lexi Krupp has more. In the 1960s, this popular senator, Philip Hart, had a dream to create a national park in the dunes of northern Michigan. But when he proposed the plan, it came as a shock to the people of Sleeping Bear Dunes. It just, it was horrifying. It scared the people. It was like, what is going to happen to us? Grace Dickinson grew up around Glen Lake and still lives there today. She remembers stories of a surveyor on South Manitou Island who stopped in at a grocery store there. And this government official comes up to the counter and puts his briefcase on the counter in a rather loud manner and said, we are here to take your land. Stories like this spread throughout the town. There was a lot of uncertainty. People didn't know if they were going to lose their land, their livelihoods. Grace remembers her father looking at a map of the proposed park boundaries that included their family property. He got out his measuring tape and began pacing off various directions. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. The line, the property boundary, uh, goes through our living room, so half of our house uh, was going to be included in the park. Grace's father helped found an opposition group called the Citizens Council of Sleeping Bear Dunes Area. The group arranged a meeting with the National Park Service director to hear more about this plan. It was an August evening, and more than a thousand people packed into the gymnasium at Glen Lake High School. This was a big crowd because at the time, the entire county had less than 9,000 residents. Jim Dutmers of Glen Arbor was a kid. He remembers hearing about the meeting afterwards. It became something of local folklore. The exchange back and forth became rather heated. In all honesty, the way the story goes, that both the people that were speaking from the stage and probably from the audience probably lost a little bit of their uh, composure. The audience booed. They laughed at the director. Most people said the whole debacle made them more opposed to the park. After the meeting, the proposal got a ton of media attention, mostly negative. People started writing to their representatives. Brian Kalt, a law professor at Michigan State University, looked through a lot of these letters. He wrote a book about the controversy around the park called 60s Sandstorm. Most were about questions of property rights, But others touched on another topic, brewing in the country at the time, race. Here's an excerpt from a letter to a congressman. Quote, I'm not prejudiced of any race, creed, or color, but I do like things in their right places. Lake Michigan shoreline is most beautiful. I'd like to own a lot on the shore myself. It would be a good place to retire, but I would not like to have colored folks for my neighbor. A survey done by a grad student in 1962 showed many residents didn't want more visitors, especially black visitors. They say, oh, we'll have all these people coming up from Chicago and Detroit. And sometimes they said people from Chicago and Detroit. Sometimes they said other words that I won't repeat from Chicago and Detroit. 
Brian thinks it's no coincidence that the main opposition group was called Citizens Council of Sleeping Bear Dunes. That's because at the time, the term Citizens Council, it was already in use by a group that started in Mississippi in 1954 and advocated for segregation. But Jim Detmers, whose father was on the board, says there is no connection. He had never heard of this other Citizens Council group. I'm frankly shocked and somewhat uh, miffed that that connotation would even be associated. I, I, I really am. Other people from the area IPR spoke with remember it the way Jim does. Race wasn't part of the conversation around the park. And in the end, the people who opposed the park for all these different reasons, they lost the fight. The area became part of the national park system 50 years ago this month. Looking back on it, a lot of people who fought so vehemently for years, like Grace Dickinson, they're glad the park is here now. Well, when I, I look across the road at Alligator Hill, for instance, or Deer South Manitou and North Manitou, what have, would, I can't imagine what would have happened. It would have been just frightful. Others, though, say it's still hard to revisit what used to be their family's land. There's always the lingering question of, what if? You're listening to Points North from Interlochen Public Radio. In our field guide this week, mushrooms and fungi are coming up thanks to rain and cooler temperatures. Many are not safe to eat, but Cheryl Bartz from our Red Pine Radio Group found one fungus you would never be tempted to eat. I was walking through a parking lot in Traverse City the other day when a splash of bright orange caught my eye. It looked like an upside-down carrot standing among the wood chips in a landscape island. The top third was covered with brown glop. It was a dog stinkhorn. It's an odd fungus native to Michigan. If the wind is right, it will have you checking the bottoms of your shoes. There's a reason for that stench. The brown, sticky, smelly stuff is actually the spores of this fungus. And they're smelly so that flies will be attracted to it and get those spores stuck to them as they taste them. Um, and then when they fly somewhere else, it will spread the fungus. That's ecologist Katie Griziak with a cockatiel you might hear in the background. Dog stinkhorns fill an important role they are our decomposers. We rely on them to take all of that dead matter, the dead trees, the leaf litter, the dead critters, and to turn it back into usable nutrients. A dog stinkhorn will melt away after just a few days, but the fungus is still alive underground in a white egg-like structure that awaits just the right conditions to erupt again. You can see a picture of the dog stinkhorn on our website, interlockinpublicradio.org. That's our show for this week. It was produced by me, Peter Payette, with Lexi Krupp and Cheryl Bartz. Next week, elections on the ballot in Michigan is a proposition about funding for public land. During this pandemic, it's really put an exclamation point on the importance of the outdoors, important for their physical health, their mental and emotional health, and dare I say, for their spiritual health. That's next week on Points North. Tune in on IPR News, Fridays during Morning Edition, or search for Points North wherever you get your podcasts.
Thanks for listening and have a great week.